Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. I begin our uh, study in this book. Uh, I don't know when it's going to end, so uh, don't ask me, are we there yet? Um, because we won't be until we get there, so uh, if that is helpful. Uh, one announcement I do have in your bulletin, there is a background slip on the Gospel of John. I figured um, it would be better to go ahead and read some basic information about this Gospel that would be helpful to know as we make our way through the book. Um, it's got authorship, it's got date, it's got genre, just some basic bare-bones information uh, that I do not want to spend 15 minutes getting into before I actually get into my sermon. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and read that, and there's also further study material uh, recommendations at the end. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and begin the first five verses in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Say a brief prayer. Father, would you teach us in these next few moments... To teach us something of your grandeur? Would you invite us into the depth of these five verses? And even though we are feeble and finite in mind, I pray that you would give us grace to understand the mysteries here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Anyone who's ever written an essay or a research paper, uh, whether in high school or college, knows that the most uh, important component of es- any essay or research paper is, um, is a thesis statement. So for some of you, this is bringing back really bad memories, just as fractions bring back bad memories for me. Um, but this thesis statement uh, is what? It lets the reader know what the paper is going to be about. Uh, it's typically a single sentence or two that is clear and concise and usually found in the introductory paragraph. Uh, I can't tell you how many rough drafts of a paper um, that I have written that have undergone revision after revision after revision, not because of the content, but because the thesis statement was not clear and simple to let the readers know what it is that I'll be arguing. Well, the Gospel of John is unlike any essay or research paper that anybody has ever penned. And at the same time, it it is like any well-written essay or writing project. It comes with a clear and concise thesis statement Uh, that lets us know what the purpose of this gospel is. Uh, Only it's not found in the beginning verses, but at the very end of the book. Before we dive into the Gospel of John, we have to have this thesis statement in clear view. We have to know what it is, the reason why John wrote his gospel in the first place. And that thesis statement is found in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. If you want to write it on the side of your Bible or on the bulletin or something to help you remember where it is and and to remind you that everything written in the book of John is to serve this thesis statement. And it reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, Jesus did a lot of things in his three-year public ministry, and the Synoptic Gospels record much of that ministry, and they had already been circulating by the time John wrote his Gospel, uh, which is often referred to by scholars and commentators as uh, the Book of Signs, his use of sign after sign after sign throughout the Gospel narrative is to show who Jesus is. All, all of the Gospel of John uh, is so that we might know who Jesus is. If I could uh, sum up the Gospel of John, it aims to serve one question. Who is Jesus and how can I believe in him? Uh, how, who is Jesus and why should I put all my chips, all my belief, all my faith, all my trust in Jesus? And John serves to show us who Jesus is in a way that the Synoptic Gospels did not capture. It's all to answer that question, who is Jesus and how can I believe in him? So as we make our way through the Gospel of John, we have to keep in mind this thesis statement. All right, we have to keep that in view, and we're often going to refer to it over and over and over again. And John begins unpacking his thesis statement in the deep end of Christology. Uh, which is just a fancy way of uh, referring to the study of the person and work of Jesus. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know which is more challenging. Uh, preaching Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 as my first sermon, or preaching John 1, 1 through 5 after a couple hours of sleep, coming back from the West. Um, so, to make it all easier on, on all of us, I have boiled these five verses in which John begins to answer the question, who is Jesus, into one main takeaway. These five verses can be summed up with this. Jesus' deity is central to his identity. Jesus' deity is central to his identity. And as we make our way through these first five verses, we're going to see why Jesus' deity is central to his identity. Uh, John is going to unpack three truths about Jesus that make his deity central to his identity. And the first truth about Jesus' deity that we see in verses 1 through 2 is that Jesus is God eternal. Jesus is God eternal. Uh, John begins his gospel um, in, in many ways unlike the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Abraham. Uh, Mark begins with the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled in John the Baptist. And Luke begins with Elizabeth and Mary. But John begins further back, the way back, from the beginning of everything. John throws us into the deep end of theology without any life jacket or swimming lessons here. In, opening, uh, in the opening words of the prologue, we read, In the beginning was the Word. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because it should. Uh, if, these, if these five verses were a play that had a backdrop on the stage, uh, then John's backdrop would be Genesis 1. And we just heard Glenn read all of Genesis 1. And if in the beginning was the word sounds familiar, it's because we just heard in the beginning, God. Right out of the gate, John is communicating Christ's deity by tracing him back to the creation narrative before anything was ever created. Before God ever said, let there be, Jesus was. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning was the Word. Uh, this is only the first of many scenes in the Gospel of John where the Old Testament is heavily influencing what John is intending to communicate. 
And we've seen that John is not merely reaching back to Israel's history, but creation's history. This is a world issue right here. This is Jesus in the very beginning. Here we are confronted with the fact that Jesus has always been. He has no point of reference that we, being bound by space and time, can conceptualize. Our language and our lives, if you think about it, are bound by a point in time, uh, whether past, present, or future. We can't talk about our day with some reference point to time. So if we, as finite, feeble creatures, can't even begin to have a conversation with another image bearer that doesn't point to time, how are we to understand Jesus being eternal? This might be why Genesis begins, and now John, with God simply being. You notice in Genesis 1 and in John 1, there is no formula on how to explain God's eternality. It simply is. And if you think I'm making that up, we could just go and look at Exodus 3.14 where Moses asked God to reveal himself. What am I supposed to tell the Israelites? Who sent me? How am I supposed to let them know it is you? And God replies to him in Exodus 3.14 with simply, I am who I am or I will be who I always have been. John the Baptist later on would put it this way in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Or when Paul writes to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1.17, he writes, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Jesus would put it even more provocatively later in chapter 8.58 of John to the Pharisees when Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Am. For those uh, who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, I'm, I'm curious what they do with a text like that. Notice John in verse 1 of our text doesn't refer to Jesus simply as Jesus or Messiah or Son of Man or Son of God here, but he refers to him as the Word. Some of you guys might be familiar with the Greek word logos there. Uh, commentators, uh, I'm just going to be quick with this. Commentators have debated whether or not this is in reference to Greek philosophy, right, which, is, uh, which viewed the logos as being the organizing principle or reason from which the world derives its being and existence, or uh, if the word that John is using here to refer to Jesus comes from Jewish tradition at the time that John wrote his gospel. Uh, personally, I tend to lean towards one commentator when he suggests that neither of these whether Greek philosophy or Jewish tradition, should be taken into consideration here in John's use of the word logos to be yet another backdrop. He, instead of Greek philosophy and Jewish tradition influencing John's use of the word applied to Jesus, I think rather we should understand John's use of the word to be another backdrop of the Old Testament, especially fitting with God's creative acts by his word in Genesis. What we read in Genesis 1 was God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, and it was. We saw that God was from the beginning. He has no time or point or reference. So when John uses the word, of, the word applied to Jesus, we should think Genesis, acts of creation, deity, eternality, rather than philosophy and Jewish tradition that would have informed John. We know this, one, because of what we read just a little bit ago, and, and two, we also know this because um, besides the, the heavy allusions to Genesis, uh, we know that John had a Christological hermeneutic. In other words, 
he was taught by Jesus himself to read with a lens that sees Jesus to see how all of the Old Testament points to and is shaped by and ultimately fulfilled with his person. We tend to read the Old Testament and insert ourselves into it or moral lessons we can draw from it. And certainly uh, there are moral lessons to be learned. But the primary aim of the Old Testament is to aim and point to the one who John says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. So right from the beginning, what are we to make of this? Right from the beginning of John's Gospel, we are confronted with a Jesus that is bigger than us. A Jesus who cannot be contained in the timelines of history books. A Jesus who is not merely restricted to a specific culture, ethnicity, country, or geographical location, or family lineage, although he had those. A Jesus who is not merely to be studied and speculated on for his influence in the particular regions in which he ministered and lived. A picture of Jesus that cannot be invented by the imagination of man. It's interesting, I was thinking about this on the plane ride. You, one, I was, had a conversation uh, with my cousin-in-law about the veracity of Scripture and the truthfulness of it and its divine origin. And I thought to myself, you know, one of the reasons why I know the Bible is not merely man is because of something like verses 1-5. through five. Right? Something that actually hurts the mind of man is not going to present this as a truth here because man does not like to not figure how things work. Now, the Jesus of the uh, Apostle John is not according to the imagination or rationality of man. The Jesus of the Apostle John is bigger than that. He's bigger than our books. He's bigger than our imaginations and our mind's feeble attempts to reduce him to rationality. Jesus is much more than one of the number of history's religious entertainers. He is the eternal Word of God who is from the beginning. This is good news. If He's bigger than all of that, friends, could He be bigger than what you brought in here this morning? Could He be bigger than the distresses that plague you now? Can He be bigger than the disappointments and the regrets and the failures And can I ask you, is he bigger in your own life as big as he is in this text this morning? Is he increasing and being made much of in your own life in word, deed, and thought? Or is Jesus being sidelined or speculated upon in your life? Or is he merely, uh, or is he a neat person who is amusing to you and he's nostalgic because you grew up with him and his name and in Sunday school class? Do you ignore him in the favor of your own lifestyle and mindset? Look, John is giving us a Jesus who is non-ignorable to those who would try to ignore him and non-negotiable to those who would put limitations and stipulations on Jesus. John's portrait of Jesus couldn't fit on the biggest canvas the world could create. He is eternal. Look, you cannot negotiate or ignore the one who is from the beginning. So does your life match the bigness that Jesus is presented here in John 1.1? Or have you reduced and made him smaller because you have set yourself up as the one who is from the beginning? In fact, John uh, will actually press in further into Jesus' eternality and blow our minds even more. And you think, well, how could John already do that? He's already started from the beginning and Jesus is being eternal. How could he get further into this mystery? Well, he does with verses 1b. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with 
God. So not only is Jesus God eternal, uh, but he is God co-eternal with God. Uh, He's a distinct person. Here we're getting into the deep end of God's triune nature. That Jesus is God eternal and also God co-eternal with God the Father, two distinct persons, yet one God. And you might be thinking right now, Kyle, explain that to me. And I can't. It's not because I'm sleep deprived right now. And it's not because I don't have the common sense or the intellectual capacity. Well, in one sense, I, actually it is, I don't have the intellectual capacity. Let me just say this. Every time someone has tried to explain what I just read down to rationality, it results in heresy. Every time. If you want an explanation of the Trinity, I cannot give you an explanation of the mystery of one God, three distinct persons. But I can hold and proclaim and give to you the mystery according to what Scripture says. For example, here's the best way I can explain or argue for God's co-eternality, yet also being God. Jesus, a distinct person from God the Father, both sharing in the same essence and being distinct persons. Uh, In John 8, 17 through 18, uh, you can flip there. You don't have to flip there if you just want to write it down on the side uh, of something. Uh, Jesus is in a theological debate with the Pharisees over the law. And, uh, and so as Jesus says to them in verse 17 through 18, uh, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So here Jesus takes something from the law, something already woven into the Old Testament, that that any charge brought against any individual needs to be on the basis of what? Two witnesses, two people, as as my translation has it. And then Jesus takes that uh, law and then says, because everything needs to be based on two people, two witnesses, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So in other words, we have to take what Jesus said about the nature of him and his Father, coupled with in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have to take, we have to embrace and proclaim and and delight in the fact that Jesus and the Father are two separate persons, yet one God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the, of the only Son from the Father. Jesus, in John 13.3-4, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So Jesus, being from the beginning, says that he is going, knowing he's going back to God where he was. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Do you see? hear that? The psalmist says, The Lord says to my Lord, And this is just a small sample of how we're going to see the relationship between the nature of the triune God unfold in the Gospel of John. Friends, I cannot explain it, but 
but I can preach it and I can show it to you in the exposition of this gospel. I can't explain it, but I can sing it and praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And again, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. I cannot explain it, but I can formulate it. I can formulate it with the help of other saints who have possessed the same spirit of truth and diligently sought the Scriptures. Consider the first bit of the Athanasius Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Friends, good theology does not need to be explained exhaustively or comprehended fully to be known and understood truly. You don't have to be a seminary student. You don't have to be a professional theologian to sing and to embrace and to delight in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. You say, does this matter? I mean... How does understanding the triune nature of God change my life? I understood that you know, God is from the beginning and that it means Jesus is bigger than all my problems and bigger than all this, but now we're getting into the deep end of everything. Isn't this for seminary students? Isn't this for doctoral students? Isn't this for the elders to get together and kind of consider and mull over? How does understanding Jesus being God, separate person, yet one, how does, this, how does understanding the triune nature of God change my life? Why does this matter? Well, I'll respond with this. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 1-3. Again, you can write it down, you can turn there. But listen to these words that Jesus prays for us, for his people. Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, yes, it matters. According to Jesus, to have eternal life is to know the eternal God as he has revealed himself. To have eternal life is to know the eternal God who has revealed himself. And he has revealed himself in his triunity. Eternal life is the gift of knowing and knowing more deeply day by day, this eternal, immeasurable, and transcendent God who has made himself fully known in the person of his Son. Uh, Knowing the Trinity is a matter of God sovereignly, graciously inviting you into that mystery from the beginning. We just read in Jesus' discourse here, uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. To know the Trinity is to be caught up into the salvation that has been given to you by the Father through the Son. 
To know the Trinity is a matter of the Gospel. And just because it cannot be understood fully does not mean it does not matter in the life of the church. There's a reason why the churches used to confess and read aloud the Athanasius Creed together because although they could not articulate and explain it themselves, they did have that there to remind themselves in and to glory in. So Jesus is God eternal. We see that here in the first verse of John 1. The second truth about Jesus' deity that make it, makes it central to his, uh, his, his identity is that Jesus is God in essence. Jesus is God in essence. If you look at uh, verse 2, or not verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1, and we haven't even made it past verse 1. Dang. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, John continues to invite us deeper into the deity of Jesus by not only stating He's eternal nature, being eternal from the beginning, and with God is co-eternal, but then he says the Word was God. Notice John does not say Jesus is merely a superhuman with special powers or godlike in his faculties as though he could earn a spot on the Avengers roster being one of the many of Earth's mightiest heroes. Uh, look, Jesus, uh, John did not say Jesus had a little bit of Godhood in him. Jesus is not half God, he's not half man, but fully God who became fully man. Again, the mystery of this is meant to be marveled at and delighted in rather than figured out. But it is vital that we understand Jesus' full deity because, look, this sets us apart from every other religion that will acknowledge Jesus and even admire him but refuse to worship and bow down to him. Muslims think highly of Jesus as a prophet. Hindus believe he is one of many avatars of their preserver and sustainer God Vishnu. Jews refuse to accept him as their Messiah. Mormons believe uh, he is Lucifer's brother. Jehovah Witnesses think he's Michael the Archangel. Secular historians believe he was merely a good moral teacher that we can learn from as though we could fit him into the same category as Gandhi. New Age spirituality admires him as one of many ways to connect with a higher power. And people with irreverent theology think Jesus is their homeboy. But friends, Bible-believing evangelical Christians worship Jesus as God eternal. And to view him as anything less is to not see him as he is given to us in Scripture. To see him as anything less cheapens and lessens the salvation he accomplished. So we say with the Apostle Thomas, we look at Jesus, my Lord and my God, John 20, 28. We say with the Apostle Paul, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19, uh, Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.5-6, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And with the author of Hebrews, we declare he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I know that was a lot of Scripture, but there's not much I can do but preach doxologically with the Word of God such high and lofty theology 
to elevate and magnify the Christ who is fully God in essence, both God eternal and God himself. I would serve you well just to simply declare the Word of God rather than rationalize the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God's friends. That is the Jesus we worship. That is the Jesus who came to dwell among us in human flesh, among sickness and brokenness, among injustice and poverty, among death and chaos. This is the Jesus who made himself a baby and dependent on a lowly couple who subjected himself to all things that cause us to worry, to weary, to shame, and feel burdened by. This is the Jesus who let people spit and mock and beat Him and crucify Him so that we may be forgiven through repentance and faith in Him to know God as Father. The reason why we have to be confronted with the absolute depth of the glory of Jesus is so that we know the absolute glory and depth of the Gospel and what it is He actually did on the cross. Do you know and believe in this Jesus? It is good news that Jesus is fully God because if He was not fully God, He could never fully atone for all your sins. He could never be the ultimate final sacrifice for sins to clear the guilty if He was only a little bit God. Because friends, if He was a little bit God, that means He was a whole lot of human. And if He was a whole lot of human without the God, He would have a whole lot of sin. And how could somebody with a whole lot of sin atone and bear the weight of the sin of the world and to clear the guilty and to make right before a just God? So Jesus is God eternal and Jesus is God in essence. And the third truth that we see in our passage here this morning about Jesus' deity is that Jesus is the creator of everything. Jesus is the creator of everything. We read verses 3-5 through five together, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And next time you get a Jehovah Witness that comes to your doorstep, just point out this passage. If Jesus is a created being, how does it say that without Him was not anything made that was made? In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hebrews 1.2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And again in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created. Who's him? Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, there is nothing that exists that does not owe its being to the one who is from the beginning. In other words, we were made by Jesus for Jesus. We were made by Jesus for Jesus. Any product, think about this, any product that we buy, yeah, we usually have somewhere stamped on it, made in the USA, made in China, made in Taiwan. But you and me, the image bearer of God, the pinnacle of his creation, have made in heaven by Jesus. This is why, this is why nothing in the world will ever be sufficient and enough to satisfy us other than the one who we were made for. 
right? If, if, if John is right in these three verses here, three verses here, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and if Colossians 1.16 is true, for by him all things were made in heaven, uh, all things were created through him and for him, that means everything that we seek to go after and give ourselves to um, as worthy and worshipful is, is, is going to prove vain in the end. You will never be totally satisfied with looking inward in yourself for meaning and purpose and what is right and wrong because you were not made by you for you. This is why it's ridiculous to think that meaning and, 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 and cure for our sin sickness can come from looking within us. This is, it's just a silly notion that we have the capacity to fix ourselves because we weren't made from us. It's a silly notion that we get to determine what is right and what is wrong and what is true. This is why our, our spouse or family, our kids, our school, our social media, or it will never be enough for us because we were not made by those things for those things. Our happiness, friends, and our hope will never be quenched until we realize we were made by Jesus to be in communion with Jesus. We were built for this. We were designed to know He who designed us. We were built to be in communion with the one who was in the beginning. We were made for relationship. Of course we long to know and be known. It's who we are as image bearers. The problem is, is we have a whole world and we all have a testimony of it where a time was where we were looking for soul satisfaction, for heart um, healing in things that could not do it. Why? Why can't other things uh, uh, satisfy you and cure you? Well, one, uh, because you were made by Jesus for Jesus, but those things were also made by Jesus for Jesus. They weren't made for you. Think about that. When we go around the world, or our communities, or our church, or our school, um, the, reason why, the reason why we're mad, the reason why we're unsatisfied, the reason why we're disappointed in other people most of the time is because we, we think they were built for us. I, I mean, how many, I, I, I was watching on the plane uh, on the way home, how many of you guys have seen the movie Jerry Maguire, real quick? Okay, so nobody who's like 14 through 20 has seen Jerry Maguire. Um, there, there's a scene, if you're familiar with the movie, there's a scene at the end of it where he, he, cut, he comes home back to his wife and he has this big spiel and he's like, I miss my wife, I love you so much, and she's crying. And, and, then, he, and then he lets out the, the, the popular phrase where he's like, you complete me. You complete me. The problem with that is that people will never complete us because people were not made for us in an ultimate sense. They weren't made for you. You and I were made to operate and find our life in light and liberty in Jesus, who is life, who is light, and who is liberty. Uh, Notice in verse 5 that John says that in Jesus is life and that the life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, darkness is no match for the Word who is in the beginning. Nothing in all creation can overcome Him. Some translations literally say that the darkness cannot comprehend or understand Him. This is why those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus can glory even in darkness. 
because we know that it's not going to win. People spend their whole lives chasing and chasing and chasing the light and the life, all the while the one who is light and life invites, asks, invites people to come seek him, to know him, invites him into this mystery. And all, people all over, all around us are settling for false lights, for false life, and in the end, it's the same. Empty. This is why those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus can glory even in darkness because we know that's nothing going, nothing's going to win. We know because of the resurrection, no darkness kept Jesus from rising from the grave. And that, that's true. There is no darkness. There's no depression. There's no anxiety. There's no regret. There's no loss. There's no injustice. There's no poverty. There's no partiality that will be able to overcome the king and kings and the ruler of the whole universe. Friend, if you were here this morning and you believe in Jesus, take heart knowing that the darkness is not and never will overcome the life and the light that is in, at work in and through you, through Christ. Uh, John wrote the gospel that bears his name so that we might know who Jesus is and how we can believe in him. He wrote it for believers to continue to believe in him and he wrote it for those who do not believe in him to come and believe in him. And if you're here today and you don't believe, friend, eternal life and light is a matter of saying yes to a person. I don't know what you heard about Christianity. I can't tell you how many people I have had a conversation with and I've asked them, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do you think Christianity is? And they just give me some off-the-wall response. And it has nothing to do with a person and it has everything to do with some rigid system. It has everything to do with a set of do's and don'ts, but it never has to do with a person. Look, giving your life to Christianity is a matter of giving over your life to the one who gave it to you in the first place and continues to sustain you with the word of his power, even now, though, so that you may know him and be with him for eternity. When we present the gospel, friends, to those around us, make sure you're presenting the word who was in the beginning, the word who was with God, the word who was God, who was in the beginning, who came and dwelt among us, who took on frailty and feebleness and weariness so that we might know him and might live and be with him so that one day we might put on a new body that cannot be weary, that cannot be feeble, and that cannot succumb to sickness so that one day we might know no injustice, we might know no loss and no regret and no anxiety. And so if we, if we take away one thing this morning, other than the, the main takeaway, which is Jesus' deity being central to his identity, if you're asking, so what? Well, here's the what. Jesus is totally worthy. The one who is holy, holy, holy is worthy, worthy, worthy of all our trust and all our belief. The Jesus who is bigger because he was from the beginning. The Jesus uh, who is also a second person sent to die for our sins. And the Jesus who is fully God and fully man. He's worthy of all our belief. He's worthy of all of our trust. Even in darkest times because we know that he is light and darkness has not and never will overcome it. Have you believed in He who is from the beginning, He who is fully God, and He who is your Creator and Redeemer? If so, continue to glory. If not, come with no expense, without price, because He who made you 
is inviting you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible mystery. A mystery that is meant to be marveled at. A mystery that is meant to be delighted in. A mystery that is uh, calling us to uh, go further and deeper. To increase in the knowledge of God. How could we ever get to a place where we are stagnant? When Paul prays in Romans 11, Oh, the depth and the riches and knowledge and the wisdom of God. How inscrutable are His ways. How unsearchable are His judgments. God, we thank You that You have invited us. And I also pray that we would not only go deeper into the mystery, but that we would hold the mystery out. That we would offer the mystery. That we would offer the source of life to people who are seeking life and satisfaction and wholeness, that we would give them the word that was from the beginning. Let us not lose sight, Lord, that the gospel begins with a person. And may we offer that person freely, without partiality. Continue to make us more into the likeness of the one who was from the beginning. And may you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.